Welcome to Talking Shop, Herbert Smith Freehill's new podcast exploring the latest global trends for consumer sector companies. My name is Eva Zurab and I specialize in defending class actions and product liability litigation. Talking Shop with us today, we have Susanna Wilkinson and Julian Lincoln. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks very much. Susanna leads the firm's Emerging Technology Group in APAC, specialising in emerging technology, including artificial intelligence, digital assets, smart legal contracts and major projects. And Julian is head of RTMT and digital, specialising in all aspects of information technology law. Now, that's all very fitting because today we are talking about generative AI and the practicality, practicalities of integrating it into consumer sector business practices. So I'm looking forward to learning lots from you both today. Over the past few years, we have seen sophisticated consumer sector businesses leading the way in all sorts of emerging technologies, the metaverse, NFTs in particular. But now we have a new kid on the block, generative AI, which is becoming very broadly available, particularly recently, and has shot into the mainstream through AI-powered chatbots like ChatGPT. So perhaps let's start there. Julian, Susanna, what is generative AI and how are you seeing it used in consumer sector businesses? Well, well thanks, Afer, and you're certainly right. Uh, AI has shot into the mainstream in, in an incredible way. Uh, AI has actually been around as a concept, at least, for quite some time. It was first um, thought about, a lot of research was done back in the 1950s. It was something that I studied uh, in what I did a computer science degree, not in the 1950s, but but still a while ago. And it's been something that's been a bit of the holy grail in the, in the computer science community. And now there, there's debate as to whether we have yet achieved AI or not, and maybe at the end of this um, session, people can form their own view, but whether or not we've actually achieved AI. Certainly something pretty special is happening. AI is a broad term which uh, describes a range of use cases where machines are designed to mimic or replicate processes normally associated with human intelligence. In other words, in plain English, the machines can think. Uh, generative AI, on the other hand, is a type of AI. It's a specific form of AI, a system that's capable of generating text, images, or other media in response to prompts. And it's something that, Susanna, we've been we've been playing around uh, with a lot lately. Yeah, that's right, Julian. And I think it's really important to understand that generative AI is very much a subset of that broad category of technology that you talked about. And I think the key point is really that generative AI models, they can be used for either language or um, images or video or audio and really it's um, built on principles of machine learning and neural networks and what that means is it's a it's a ability to process large amounts of information or large amounts of data so from the generative ai context if you're talking about a language model it's effectively like an autocomplete on steroids it basically looks for patterns in language and it predicts the sort of the words that would be expected or, or are highly correlated to appear together in a sentence. So when you get, you put an input question into um, a generative AI text model and you'll get an output, which is something that looks like it's been written by a human, but it's actually just a, a pattern prediction exercise. So it's really important to remember that these uh, text generative AI models are not, um, they're not in the business of talking, of, of ensuring truth 
and accuracy and knowledge. It really is just around correlation of words. And if anyone's ever participated in some of those word cloud um, live uh, exercises where you start to see how many, you know, which words are, are, are being used the most, that's a really useful way of thinking about how generative AI can work in a text context. Where you also get other applications in terms of images and things, we can have more or less creativity, um, they say turning up the temperature dial, where you can get really creative image outputs where what the model is doing is associating components of imagery in a way that may be slightly less correlated, so it seems to be more creative, um, but it's all about pattern recognition and prediction. I'm just picking up on that creativity that you've mentioned, Susanna. So it seems inevitable that generative AI will appear and is already appearing in sort of that product innovation space, supply chain, operations, marketing and sales. What's your advice to consumer sector companies who are really trying to grasp what are the risks that might arise here? Um, we've heard things like hallucination, misinformation, discrimination and bias. Can you sort of step us through some of those key risks? Yeah, look, and, and they are certainly, um, there's a lot of risks in the headlines at the moment. And I think it is vitally important when we talk about um, the broad category of artificial intelligence or any of these narrower subsets in terms of generative AI, you have to look at the legal harms and risks in the context of any particular use case. So if you are using um, generative AI to summarise a document, um, it will be very efficient at summarising a large amount of text, but the risks and harms will depend on how you use that text and what reliance you place on that text. So there's high profile cases at the moment where a lawyer has used um, one of the generative AI models to um, draft some court documents and the output of the model has created some fictional um, judgments, fictional cases. And so obviously in that instance, there's a real risk of procedural harm if um, a decision was made by a judge on the basis of um, a, a case that never, never existed. Um, there's also other examples um, where you might rely on the output um, and perhaps there's false statements or misinformation included. Um, so again, coming back to the fact that generative AI models are not um, truth tools, the outputs can produce results that are incredibly convincing and that will convince us that they were probably written by a human, uh, but that doesn't mean that you, you should rely on them and you should always verify um, the facts and any references. But so just going back to some of the high level issues that you noted, hallucination I touched on before, that's when the output of the model might make some associations between different words or different components of an image that are slightly creative. Um, that can be useful in some contexts, but it can also be really damaging in others. Uh, misinformation, again, comes back to the question of reliance on the output of the model and how are you using that information? Could it be uh, issues of consumer law where you're making misleading and deceptive statements? Um, we also have in some other use cases, discrimination and bias as a key risk and harm. But discrimination and bias is really um, an issue that comes up in artificial intelligence conversations more often where you have automated decision making or where you have a, um, a risk of harm or inherent bias in the training data. 
um, because when you train these AI systems, invariably they're using historical data, and that data may reflect historical discrimination and bias, or there may be unconscious bias or active bias in the way that the developers program the algorithm. So there's quite a lot of complexity around that. Um, and then one other point just to, to flag is really intellectual property. And this is a big one in the consumer sector. So if you are looking to create content for marketing campaigns that may use images that have been collected from sources on the web or training data models, there may be rights that exist in some of that training data that are inconsistent with the use case that you're trying to um, deploy and why you've used the tool in the first instance. So there's a lot of content in there. I guess the main takeaway is understand how you're using the tool, how you're using the output and what reliance is going to be put on the output. Then you can start to assess um, the, the relevant harms and risk and of course the appropriate mitigants for those harms and risks. And just on the mitigants piece, I'd be interested just to hear your thoughts on some of the sort of clever or practical ways that our listeners can incorporate some of those risk mitigation practices into their general day-to-day -day practice, particularly when, for example, there's privacy issues involved or personal information um, that is the, the subject of some of the, the generative AI information. It's a good it's a good point, Afer. I mean, I think we have to we have to acknowledge that in any organization, people people are playing with these tools, they're using them. So I, I think that's the first thing. So it's really important that an organization has, has regard to their business. And in the consumer sector, there are some unique uh, aspects or issues. It is often uh, obviously consumer facing. There's a lot of IP in terms of brands, but also advertising, the content, misleading and deceptive risks. And the way the consumer sector companies engage with the public is different, say, to financial services or mining companies or other industrial companies. So the first thing we need to do is um, match up the, the business and the way that AI can be used in the business to, to, that, to that sector. And it's really important to put in place a policy or a framework within, within your organisation. Pe people want to do the right thing. People want to play with these technologies, but it's important to give everyone guidance and that policy should should set out the sort of the rules or the framework uh, for the use of AI in in your business and there's absolutely benefit in in many industries in using AI tools but it's got to be done in in the right way uh, and so <clears throat> it's really important in the consumer sector to, to make sure that that policy covers off uh, what information is being put into the AI engine. So if you put something into a, a, a public open AI model, a ChatGPT or Google's Baird, that, that is, that you cannot guarantee the confidentiality or security of that information. So your policy should, should acknowledge that and talk about not putting sensitive information, don't put business confidential information, don't put proprietary information, uh, be very careful with your brands, anything that you don't want to be sort of outside the organisation perimeter, be really careful about putting that into, into those tools. And equally, you should be really clear and careful around the reliance that can be made on the outputs of those tools. So use it as part of the internal processes. Uh, don't rely on it to produce content without, without review. 
we're in a state of flux. And, and the way that these tools that are publicly available work today is going to keep changing. And we've seen many, um, many technology companies, people like Atlassian, who've integrated AI uh, functionality into their tools, Microsoft's releasing it into their tools. Many vendors are including AI tools into their organisation and we're seeing many big companies look at how can they deploy AI technologies within their organisation's security perimeter. And that potentially will be a game changer because if you're able to then engage within the security of your own environment, know that your data is safe and secure and not going to be fed back into the AI engine, then you can over time look at using those AI tools in different ways. So it's it's partly about what, what business am I in? what use is appropriate for my business, but also what AI tools am I using? As, as Susanna uh, mentioned at the beginning, it's a very broad term, AI, and there's all sorts of different technologies available and they'll continue to evolve. So, so it is really important to understand the particular AI technologies that the organisation is, is using. And I think what we're seeing many companies, including in the consumer sector, do is, is step back and think about responsible AI. So it's not just about um, the, the guardrails as such, but it's about what what is what are the risks, what are the regulations, what's the government's framework, what are the ethical uh, parameters that I should should put in place. So just as we look at governance across many aspects of our organisations, we need to do the same in in the AI context, and that should form part of the broader ethics and governance arrangements uh, within within your organisation. And thirdly, we need to all keep an eye on regulation. There's there's a saying uh, that technology uh, is always well ahead of the law or the law never keeps up with technology. Well, AI might be the case that proves the exception because we're seeing an incredible focus on regulation uh, and there's been a lot of work that we've done. You can find some of it on our website around the different regulatory regimes in different countries. But suffice to say, most jurisdictions are looking at this, different countries are going down different ways, but there is a lot of uh, concern and a lot of emphasis on the regulatory piece. So keeping a watching brief on how that's evolving and, and many of our consumer sector clients, they are working across multiple jurisdictions. So it's, it's not as simple as saying, I'll just look at Australia, we need to look at the European position, the UK position uh, and so forth, because it does vary considerably across, across jurisdictions. And look, there's so much content in here. I think we could we could speak about this for hours. But maybe Susanna, just training and education, obviously hugely important. Are there any sort of just quick takeaways that you would recommend from a training education perspective? Uh, look, I think yes. Um, I think it's really important for businesses to understand that the the paradigm shift here is that where procurement of, of big software solutions used to probably follow a process within an organisation and you'd have some safeguards and procedures around that, the self-serve nature of these tools now that are publicly available, businesses need to recognise that there is a good chance uh, that individual employees may be using these tools to help with particular tasks um, to improve efficiency. So we do need to make sure that employees understand what these tools are, how they work and what the challenges could be. And touching on the, the really um, insightful comments that Julia made before about not putting client sensitive information or confidential information. And we've seen some pretty significant headlines where people have made some big mistakes in that respect. So understanding how the tools work at a high level to know what you shouldn't shouldn't be doing. 
um, and then implementing appropriate measures within um, within the organisation to make sure that those tools are being used efficiently. And there will be, as Julian said, lots of options uh, for businesses to really embrace the technology in within the parameter of um, you know the business systems. Um, and I think there are, in terms of education, there's lots of information that's available, but um, understanding at their core how how the systems work is probably the most useful. Um, and then also looking at how we can educate uh, employees within our business to leverage these sorts of tools efficiently in the appropriate context and with the right processes around them um, will really drive uh, efficiencies across businesses. Well, fantastic. Thank you, Julia and Susanna, for talking shop with us today. Somehow you've managed to make the infinite possibilities of generative AI much less overwhelming. We're looking forward to sharing more consumer sector insights over the coming months on these podcasts. And as far as the consumer sector and intersection of technology goes, there are few startup success stories like Amazon. So I'll close this episode with an interesting fact relating to the consumer sector. Have you ever wondered what was the first product ever to be sold on Amazon back in 1994? Well, speaking of simplifying big concepts, it was a book titled Fluid Concepts and Creative Analogies, Computer Models of the Fundamental Mechanisms of Thought by Douglas Hofstadter. What a mouthful. As ever, thank you for listening and we'll speak soon. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.